I heard the story of a little boy coming home from his church one day, and his dad said to him, what did you talk about in Sunday school today? And the little boy said, we talked about Moses. And the dad said, okay, what did your teacher have to say about Moses? He said, well, our teacher told us about Moses going across the Red Sea with all the people of Israel. And the dad said, did your teacher tell you how that happened? The boy said, yes. The teacher said that Moses called engineers to build a pontoon bridge. And while they were building the bridge, he turned his heavy artillery back towards the Egyptians to hold them off. And after the bridge was built, the Hebrew children walked across the pontoon bridge and got across to the other side. And when the Egyptians started following them across the bridge, Moses called in air support to bomb the bridge and the Egyptians were all drowned. And the father said, are you sure that's what your teacher told you? And the boy said, no, but if I told you what the teacher said, you'd never believe it. <laughs> We've been in this series about nameless difference makers, and several of the weeks have involved a miracle of some kind. And the miracles in the Bible are what make some people kind of roll their eyes and doubt whether the Bible is true or not. They wonder if the Bible can really be believed when it has stories of the Red Sea parting and millions of people walking through on dry land or when it has stories about paralyzed people being able to walk again. And today's nameless difference maker comes from one of those stories that make skeptics struggle with Scripture. Today, we are going to talk about the biggest nameless difference maker in this entire series. And I don't mean that this difference maker is more significant than the widow that we talked about last week, or the servants of name, or the people who helped the paralyzed man get healed. I mean, this difference maker is literally bigger. Our difference maker is the big fish in the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is one of the stories that leaves some people scratching their heads and saying, now come on, did that really happen? And I'll give you my opinion on that before we're done today, but before I answer that, let's look at the story. What's the one thing we all know about Jonah? He gets swallowed by a whale, right? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't really say it was a whale. It says big fish, but we've always talked about Jonah and the whale. Now, while Jill and I were on vacation in Texas a few weeks ago, we spotted one of those big fish that might be able to eat someone. In fact, we took some pictures. There, there's one. I don't know if you can see, but I'm right in the mouth of the big fish. And Let's look at the next one. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it's uh, actually trying to chomp down on me. Okay, but seriously, the story of Jonah and the whale is another one of those stories that we hear as kids. I mean, there was this guy named Jonah. He got thrown overboard from a, a ship, and a whale swallowed him. And then a few days later, the whale let him go. Okay, vomited him out. Now, it's a great kid's story except for this one fact. I've had kids ask me about it, 
and they're suspicious. What kind of whale was it, they ask, and how did Jonah stay alive in the stomach? I mean, wasn't it dark? How could he breathe? And finally, is this really true? I mean, did it really happen? In other words, sometimes even kids don't buy this story. So right about now, you might be wondering, then why do we keep telling our kids these stories? I mean, and maybe the bigger question is this, why do we keep telling ourselves these stories? I mean, we're not mindless. We know the difference between fact and fiction. And so why do we insist on reading and sharing stories like this? Why not just stick with Jesus and the things that Jesus said? And it's a good question. And it's one that I'll at least start to answer in this message. I remember being in a seminar several years ago about storytelling. I was trying to become a better storyteller, and the person leading the seminar said this. I'll never forget it. Uh, The person said, a story doesn't survive unless there's something about it that is true. A story doesn't survive unless there's something about it that's true. And she was right. Because we don't repeat stories of any kind that don't have at least some kernel of truth or wisdom in them. And this story of Jonah is a well-repeated story. Long before it was ever set down on paper for the first time, it was being told. In fact... This story has been around for the better part of 3,000 years, and we still tell it today because there's something about it that rings true to us. And though the whale is memorable, the truth of the story really has little to do with the big fish. It goes a little deeper than that. So even if you're a skeptic about the story and whether it literally happened or it's just a parable for teaching people important lessons, let's look at things that are true about the story. And at the end, I'll tell you whether I think it literally happened as the Bible describes it. The first thing the story of Jonah tells us that we know is true is we sometimes run away from God. We sometimes run away from God. Look at these verses from Jonah chapter 1. It says this, The Lord spoke his word to Jonah, son of Amidi. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because I see the evil things they do. But Jonah got up and uh, got up to run away from the Lord by going to Tarshish. He went to the city of Joppa, where he found a ship that was going to the city of Tarshish. Jonah paid for the trip and he went on board, planning to go to Tarshish to run away from the Lord. God asks Jonah to go to a huge city that is really ungodly and preach against it, to preach against it. It seems like that would be like God telling you to go to a city full of radical Muslim people and say bad things about Muhammad. And it wasn't a job anyone would think was easy. And Jonah didn't want to do it. So instead of heading to Nineveh, he got on a boat heading in the absolute opposite direction. He was going as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could. And we know this part of the story is true because we've all run away from God at times. I mean, 
He's given us instructions through his word and we've completely ignored those instructions and gone the other way. It might have to do with hanging out with people who are going to pull you away from God or listening to people who are always negative and like to gossip or refusing to forgive or deciding that you know better about the rules for sexuality and what they should be. But I'm guessing each of us has known what God was asking us to do in some area and we have intentionally run the opposite direction. Sometimes people have run away from God in other ways. I mean, God didn't answer the prayer the way that they thought he should, or they got hurt by someone who claimed to follow God, or they just decided doing it God's way was just too hard. And so they've worked hard to push God out of their life completely. I mean, they mock people who believe in Jesus and they avoid anything spiritual and they do things that they know uh, go against what people who follow Jesus would do and believe and they keep as far from God as they possibly can. But I've found that usually some of those people in their quiet moments still think about God. They still think about spiritual things, no matter how far they think that they might have run from God. And that brings us to the next thing that is true about our story. God sends whales into our life. God sends whales into our life. So Jonah's running away from God, and he gets on a boat, and he falls into a deep sleep, and a storm comes up, and it must have been a bad one because Jonah seems to stay asleep, which is weird, but the seasoned sailors are frightened by this storm. So it must have been a bad storm. They eventually decide that there's something spiritual about this storm. They're pretty superstitious, and so they start looking for a cause of the storm, and they wake up Jonah, and he says, it's me. I'm the reason for the storm. Then he tells them the storm is because he's running away from God. Now, as a side note, if you're running away from what God wants you to do and your life seems full of storms, your life seems full of problems and conflicts, that doesn't surprise me. Because often God allows the storms into our life to get our attention. He allows those storms in our life to pull us back towards him. So this storm was because Jonah's running away from God, and Jonah tells the sailors, here's what you do, just throw me overboard. And these sailors are more godly than Jonah, and they try everything else first, but the storm continued. So look at these verses from chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea, and the sea became calm. Then they began to fear the Lord very much. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made promises to him. And the Lord caused a big fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So they throw him overboard, and he's swallowed by this big fish and he lives inside it for three days and three nights. Then if you read the story, you find that after three days and three nights, Jonah 
decides maybe it's time to pray. After three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, he decides that it's time to pray. So uh, the whale is today's difference maker because it brought Jonah back to God. Literally, the time in the whale convinced Jonah to turn back to God for help. And whether you believe this story is literally true or not, I want to tell you, I believe with all my heart that God works hard to bring people back to him that have run away from him. God works hard to bring people who have run away from God back to God. And he does that in incredible ways. He sends a whale sometimes. And the whale might... uh, look different. I've seen it over and over. I remember a gal in our church in California 35 years ago. Her name was Barb, but her family called her Boo. And Boo had gone to Bible college. Boo had married a young man who was going to go into ministry. And Boo had this perfect marriage, and everybody at the Bible college thought they were the perfect couple And then Boo discovered that her husband had all sorts of secrets that involved a lot of sexual sin and Boo ended up separated from her husband, eventually divorced from her husband. But when Boo's world kind of shattered, after following God all of her life and trusting God all of her life, Boo kind of went off the deep end. And Boo fell into some sin that was pretty similar to her husband's sin. And she ran from God. I mean, she was a long way from God. And she was living a sinful lifestyle. Her family was worried about her. She wasn't in a lot of contact with her family. But Boo would tell you that every day she thought about Jesus every day She thought about what God would want. And one day in particular, in this apartment she lived in that happened to be next to a church, she was praying and she said, said, okay, God, I'm tired. I'm tired of running and I don't know what to do and I've sinned and I've embarrassed my parents and I've embarrassed myself and I've just been so far from you. And at that moment, the church next door, the bell tower began to play an old hymn And the old hymn was one that Boo knew. And what was playing when she tuned into it was the music for the words, Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. And Boo did. She came home to God, and she went home to her family, and Boo has been walking a faithful life with Jesus ever since that. You see, God sends whales, sometimes in the form of a song, to bring us back to him. So let me ask you, what's God doing in your life to get you to come home? Oh, maybe you haven't been very far away, but you've been out on your own. What is God doing in your life to get you to come home? What is he doing to get you to do whatever it is that he's asked you to do that you've been avoiding. He has an irritating way of making sure that many messages that you hear in church just kind of jab at you 
in that area where you've been avoiding him or disobeying him, it's true. He sends whales into our life in various ways to bring us home. But let's look at something else that Jonah's story tells us that is absolutely true. And that is we judge some people as unworthy. We judge some people as unworthy. Now, the whale vomits Jonah up, and that had to be pleasant. And God says again, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach against what they're doing. And this time Jonah does it. He walks through the city and he preaches loudly and boldly that God is going to destroy them. He's going to destroy the people of Nineveh unless they turn to God. And they repent. They turn back to God. And their repentance is even led by the king of the land. But look at what happens next in chapter 3, verse 10, and then uh, chapter 4, the first part of verse 1. When God saw what the people did, that they stopped doing evil, he changed his mind and did not do what he had warned. He did not punish them. But this made Jonah very unhappy. God decides not to destroy all these people. And you would think that Jonah would be celebrating, that he would be happy about the fact that his preaching had rescued thousands of people from the wrath and the damnation of God. But Jonah isn't happy. Why? Well, he hated the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh were uh, the biggest enemies of Jonah's people. And perhaps Jonah had actually seen these cruel and ruthless and bloody Ninevites periodically coming down into his land and raiding his people. Maybe he even had loved ones who died or who suffered at the hands of these merciless people. And in the ancient world, the Ninevites might have held the record for the bloodiest and most vicious kinds of cruelty. They fought, uh, they found more incredibly ingenious ways to be cruel than any other nation that has ever lived. And they were brutal and they were godless and they were sinful and Jonah hated them. The one thing that he wanted more than anything else was to see Nineveh destroyed. And when it didn't happen, he was unhappy. He saw them as unworthy of God's love. He saw them as unworthy of God's mercy. And the ugly truth is, most of us do this. Most of us. We judge some people as unworthy of God's love, of unworthy of God's touch. I mean, there is a place in Kansas that calls itself a church that has decided that homosexuals are unworthy of God's love and God's mercy. And many today seem to have decided that people who are Muslims are unworthy of God's love and God's touch and God's forgiveness and grace in their life. And you're sitting there and you're saying, but pastor, I don't judge anyone unworthy of God's love and God's mercy. I just don't do that. I don't judge anyone as unworthy. Really? Really? So you'll be okay if God lets the people from that church in Kansas into heaven? You know, those people that picket 
the funerals of our soldiers, you're okay if God lets them into heaven? Jeffrey Dahmer, who murdered people and then ate their bodies for dinner, became a Christian before he died. Are you okay with God letting a mass murderer into heaven? How about rapists? How about child molesters? It's an ugly truth, isn't it? We sometimes judge some people as unworthy. Another part of the story that uh, is also absolutely true is we sometimes get mad at God. We sometimes get mad at God. Jonah was mad at God. In fact, read the story later. It's only a few pages, but if you read the story, you will see he is really ticked. He's really ticked. He's sitting off by himself and he's pouting. Have you ever been that mad at God that you were pouting? I have. I have. I remember many times when our daughter was sick being mad at God because he didn't heal her and because he let her suffer. I've had times when I've been mad at God and I'm guessing you have too. But look at why Jonah was mad. Chapter 4, start with verse 1 again. But this made Jonah very unhappy, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. When I was still in my own country, this is what I said would happen. And that is why I quickly ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a God who is kind and shows mercy. You don't become angry quickly, and you have great love. I knew you would choose not to cause harm. So now, now I ask you, Lord, please kill me. It's better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, do you think it's right for you to be angry? Jonah was mad at God because God was too loving. He was mad at God because God was too forgiving. He says, that's why I ran away in the first place, God. He said, I know you too well. Oh God, uh, I know that if uh, anyone by repenting gives you half a chance to be merciful, you'll change your mind. You won't carry out the death sentence upon them. That's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, what a revelation of the knowledge of God and the character of God in the Old Testament of the Bible in the Old Testament times. From time to time, those who don't believe the Bible says that the God of the Old Testament is this vengeful, wrathful God, a God uh, of black thunderclouds and uh, bolts of lightning and that he's always killing people. Well, do you find that here? I mean, that's not the kind of God that Jonah knew. He said, I knew you were a God who is kind and shows mercy. You don't become angry quickly, and you have great love. I knew you would choose not to cause harm. And that's why Jonah was angry. Now, I've been mad at God, but it took me a long time to admit something. Sometimes I have been mad at God, because he was too loving and too merciful. 
shortly after our daughter died at the age of four, I got really ticked at God. She died about three weeks before Christmas, and at Christmas time that year, that same year, some parents in Chicago left their two kids, age eight and age four, alone in their apartment in Chicago, and they went to a resort in Mexico on vacation. And the kids were there alone, and uh, the heat went out, and eventually the neighbors discovered the kids home alone, and the parents got in some trouble, but eventually they got their kids back. And that's when I got ticked at God. He let them keep their four-year-old, but let me lose mine to a horrible disease. You know what I was mad about? God was kind to them and showed them mercy. And I thought they were unworthy. And I was mad at God. You've probably struggled with the same reason for being mad at God, even if you've never admitted it. I mean, you know, those people hurt you. They mistreat you. And God doesn't make the people who hurt you suffer, or at least not enough. I mean, in fact, sometimes they seem to get happier and their lives seem to get more successful and better after they hurt you and you get kind of ticked at God. Yeah, sometimes we get ticked at God and we get mad at him because he's too loving. He's too merciful. But the story tells us something else that's true. God loves to have the last word. God loves to have the last word. Let's go back to our story. In our story, Jonah's pouting. He's sitting on a hillside, apparently overlooking the city of Nineveh. Now, I think that the reason he's there is I think that he's hoping that God would change his mind because Jonah is pouting and that God will change his mind and destroy his city, uh, destroy the city of Nineveh. And I think he's on that hillside pouting because he wants a front row seat if God changes his mind and destroys this city. But he's still pouting. And it's pretty hot in that area. So where he's sitting is warm and there's this warm wind and then this plant begins to grow right where he's sitting. And it's a a pretty amazing plant because it grows really big, really quickly, and it provides shade in the heat of the day and gives Jonah some relief from the heat. But the next day, it's warm again, and God sends a worm, and the worm eats the plant, and it dies as quickly as it grew. And Jonah's pouting in the heat again, and apparently he's now mad at God because God's too loving and forgiving, and he's mad at God because his shade went away. So let's pick up the story there and look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. But God said to Jonah, Do you think it's right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah answered, it's right for me to be angry. I'm so angry I could die. And the Lord said, you are so concerned for that plant, even though you did nothing to make it grow, it appeared one day and the next day it died. Then shouldn't I show concern for the great city of Nineveh 
which has more than 120,000 people who do not know right from wrong, and many animals too. This whole thing with the plant is an object lesson from God. It's God having the last word with Jonah. He says, Jonah, do you think you have the right to be mad about the plant? And Jonah keeps pouting, and he says, yes, it's right for me to become angry, and I'm so angry I want to die. God says, wow, Jonah, you really cared a lot about that plant. You cared a lot about a plant that you did nothing to make grow. And it just appeared one day and was gone the next. If it's okay for you to care that much about a plant, you think it's okay if I care about 120,000 people who I created, who I love, who I want to be close to? You see, God had the last word. And it was about the subject where God always starts the conversation and ends the conversation. His last word was about his love. It was about his love for people. The book of Jonah, at its heart, is the story about God's love. It's about God loving Nineveh enough to want them to turn back to God. And it's about God loving Jonah enough that when Jonah ends up in the ocean, God sends a difference maker to rescue him and bring him back to God. And it's also about God loving Nineveh enough not to want to destroy them. And it's God loving Jonah enough to protect him with a plant that grows very quickly. And it's God loving Jonah enough to say, okay, you've been angry long enough, now listen to me. Now listen to me. And in the end, it's about God loving each of us. About God loving each of us and wanting us to be in a relationship with him, even at times when we're mad at him. It's about God's love having the last word, even when we're not sure we want his love to have the last word. We're almost done here, but let's look at one more thing from the story of Jonah that I also think is true, and that's this. God works through miracles. God works through miracles. Remember earlier when we wondered why we tell these stories rather than just focusing on the words of Jesus? Well, let's go back to that thought. Let me answer the other question I promised to answer. Is it literally true? Did a literal man named Jonah really get swallowed by a big fish lived inside the fish for three days and then got vomited out on the beach three days later. Here's my answer. I believe it's true. I believe it's true, and here's my reason. Jesus believed it was true. Jesus believed it's true. If we believe Jesus, if we focus on only his words, we have to believe the story of Jonah is true. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus answered, evil and sinful people are the ones who want to see a miracle for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was in the stomach of the big fish for three days and three nights. In the same way, the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights. So Jesus talking to people who are just wanting to see him do some magic and do a miracle, he says, you know, it's only evil and sinful people that build their whole faith on miracles, and so we shouldn't do that. 
But Jesus said they will get a miracle, just a different miracle than they want. And in the midst of telling them this, Jesus said that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And if that's true, it had to be a miracle because a whole bunch of skeptics will point you to a whole lot of information that say that whales just cannot swallow a person whole and have that person live inside of a fish for three days. You'll see some other internet hoaxes of people saying that it happened, but it just physically with normal circumstances isn't possible. And so the fact that it happened means that God did a miracle and God does miracles. I believe it. I believe all of the miracles in the Bible. And I don't feel the need to find some logical explanation because I'm okay following a God who does miracles. Does he do them all the time? No. Does he do them every time I wish he would? Absolutely not. But God does miracles. In fact, I stake my entire eternity on the miracle that Jesus said would be the only sign that we would get. And that is that just as Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights, that Jesus would be in the grave for three days and three nights and then come forth alive again. The miracle Jesus referenced there and compared to Jonah was his own death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus was in that grave for three days. And that's the ultimate miracle. It was the ultimate miracle when Jesus, who was dead, came back to life again. And it was the reason that he came. The whole reason that Jesus lived here on earth, was born in Bethlehem, and lived among us, was so that he could die and come back to life. And his whole reason for doing that was to bring us back to God. It was to bring us back to God because you see, our sin separates us from God. That's what scripture says. That the cost we pay God, the price we owe him because of our sin is death. And that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, who never sinned, came to earth so that he could die, so that his blood could pay my price and your price. And as a result, our sins that were dirty and awful and bad could be cleansed. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus. And because of that, when I die, I will stand face to face with Jesus. I'll see him and loved ones that have trusted Jesus who have gone on to heaven and I stake my entire eternity on a miracle. Jesus came and he died to bring us back to God. To take us from despair to hope, to take us from uh, condemnation to salvation. And if you've been running away from God, it's time to come home.
It's time to come home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for not letting the normal, logical laws of our world continue to just uh, be the only possibility in our life. Thank you that you do miracles. Thank you that you have given to us forgiveness and mercy when we didn't deserve it, when someone else thought we were unworthy. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you have done all sorts of things so that we might come back to you. And Father, I pray right now for those that have been running away from you, for those that have been playing games with you, that they might come home. Father, for those that know exactly what you want them to do, but they've been running in the opposite direction, would you cause them to turn back to you, to trust in you, to follow you? And Father, thank you so much that every word, every action that we hear from you is about how much you love us and that you express that through Jesus, your son. In Jesus' name. Amen.